Coming up this evening, live from New York City. California's government wants to set workers' wages for the state's fast food industry. The bill is already headed to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. A car stealing challenge going viral on TikTok is causing problems for car owners and the police. So which brands are getting hit worst? And an American advocacy group says there's no climate emergency. It signed a global declaration calling for a change in public policy. We have that and much more coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. Paul Graney here for NTD Business. Elon Musk sure does want out of the Twitter deal, it seems. Yesterday, the billionaire entrepreneur said allegations made by a Twitter whistleblower should allow him to back out. Today, though, Twitter snapped back, calling Musk's latest attempt to scrap the deal, quote, invalid and wrongful. The whistleblower, Twitter's former head of security, has thrown out a number of allegations, including that Twitter purposefully undercounted the amount of spam. Musk's lawyers say that if what he says is true, then Twitter has breached the merger agreement. Twitter did reply to the letter saying it didn't breach any obligations, insisting it plans to force Musk to go through with the $44 billion deal. And the California legislature has passed a bill that, according to the Wall Street Journal, would give the government the power to set fast food workers' wages. So what do restaurant owners and economists think of the new idea? Anthony's Klon Fredrickson looks into it. California's legislature has passed a bill that would heavily impact its fast food industry. Namely, it would create a government panel which will decide how much fast food restaurants must pay their workers. Californian politicians will choose who goes on the panel, which will include union representatives, workers, and employers. They want to set wages to be as high as $22 per hour by next year. The initial hit is going to be, uh, you know, uh, almost all the profits are going to diminish, disappear overnight until you catch up. And even then, I'm not sure, you know, if we're ever going to be as profitable as we are, you know, pre-pandemic. Wing Lam is the co-founder of Wahoo's Fish Taco, a restaurant chain with over 30 locations in California. Lam says he's going to have to raise prices. We have two choices. We figured out how to, you know, live with the increases or we move out of California. And a lot of companies have. Lamb says restaurant owners outside of California make more money because they don't have to deal with California's regulations. These people don't understand anything about economics and business. Robert Wright is a senior faculty fellow at AIER. Wright believes we'll see a lot of unemployed fast food workers. You will see lots and lots of people trying to get fast food jobs, but not many employers wanting to hire them at that at that wage. This is a labor demand and supply chart. This line represents labor supply. This line represents labor demand. We have wages on the y-axis and quantity of labor on the x-axis. At the center is the equilibrium wage, where the market causes labor supply and demand to meet. If a government-mandated minimum wage is above the equilibrium, that results in more labor supply than labor demand. In other words, fewer workers. I love how governments think that they can control the world just by, you know, making an edict. But in the end, prices and markets are going to uh, 
are going to win out. John Dunham is the president of John Dunham & Associates, an economic research firm. Dunham says that if the minimum wage is too high, all it does is hurt the industry, including the workers in that industry. Governor Gavin Newsom has until September the 30th to either sign or veto the bill. He hasn't publicly taken a stance on it yet. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And your cell phone carrier may know more about your daily life than you realize. According to carrier letters made public on Friday by the Federal Communications Commission, the country's largest wireless carriers know where you are every time you make a phone call or use your data connection. And they routinely hold on to that location information for months. In some cases, they provide it to law enforcement whether you like it or not. Letters show smartphones constantly communicate with cell towers, giving specific GPS coordinates to the carriers. Officials are now calling in the FCC's Enforcement Bureau to investigate whether wireless carriers are doing enough to tell customers how their information is handled. We'll keep you updated. And viral videos strike again as thefts of Kias and Hyundais have been increasing since a recent trend started on TikTok. Today's Sean Marshall is more. So first, they left my steering wheel lock sitting on the seat just to, you know, rub it in my face, probably. Police officers across the country have spent August busy with reports of stolen Hyundai and Kia vehicles, a concerning trend given a boost by a TikTok challenge. Thieves are using USB cables to hijack certain Hyundai and Kia vehicles between 2010 and 2021 model years, according to a release from the Los Angeles Police Department. Targeted vehicles have key-based ignitions rather than the push-button start found in newer vehicles. Former U.S. Senate Chief of Staff Chuck Flint believes it's likely that TikTok algorithms are being manipulated by Beijing to target Americans who could be persuaded to steal the cars. That, that, that then allows them to target specific individuals who might be more susceptible to committing this type of activity. They're profiling Americans using the TikTok app, and then in doing so, they're able to even more narrowly tailor their approach to go after the people that might say, hey, you know what, this is, this is fun. The trend is called the Kia Challenge. It involves thieves filming themselves breaking into a car and taking it for a joyride before dumping it. Flint mentioned this produces a lot of data on Americans and that activities like this never go viral in China. And I think more important for, for people to understand is why this is happening. It's part of a broader strategy that China has, an unrestricted warfare type of strategy against the United States. And this is part of it. People see it and they say, well, th this is nothing other than just people kind of doing something silly on social media, but there's more to it. Some Kia and Hyundai owners in Wisconsin filed a lawsuit against the car companies in 2021. And since then, owners from Missouri, Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, Kentucky, and Texas have joined on. It should be noted that progressive insurance won't insure some Kias and Hondas. Kia has issued this response to the trend. Kia America is aware of the rise in vehicle thefts of a subset of trim levels. All 2022 models and trims have an immobilizer applied either at the beginning of the year or as a running change. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Crazy. On a Wall Street today, stocks closed lower for a third straight session. The Dow fell 308 points, 1 percent. S&P dropped 44 points, 1 and 1 tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq lost 135 points, also 1 and 1 tenth of a percent today. 
But despite news of recession, there are now hiring signs still blazing across America. Many businesses still seeking workers, according to the Labor Department. There were roughly 11.2 million jobs available in the U.S. last month. That's a slight rise from June. July's numbers boiled down to nearly two available positions per job seeker. You got your pick. But a new study says if the Federal Reserve keeps raising rates to fight inflation, it could strike a major blow to the job market. According to analysis from RSM Monday, if the Fed focuses on getting inflation back to 2%, up to 5.3 million jobs could vanish. If the Fed revises its inflation rate to 3%, the economy would still need to slow down, resulting in a loss of about 1.7 million jobs. That would cause the national unemployment rate to rise from 3.5% to 4.6%. And that, researchers say, is the best-case scenario. Last week, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell warned that not getting a tight grip on inflation could result in major financial problems in the future. And in other news, foreign beef is being labeled and sold as made in the USA. President of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association says that's happening in the United States for years and it's hurting American ranchers. Here's more. Dr. Brooke Miller is the president of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, which represents American ranchers. He told the Epic Times that meat monopolies are driving rural American farmers out of the market. We've been losing thousands and thousands of cattle ranchers over the last several decades. And it's all based on the fact that we have four multinational corporations that dominate uh, the, pro the food protein industry. They uh, have anti-competitive practices and uh, they basically steal a lot of money out of rural America. Miller says farmers in rural America can't compete against the practices that these corporations employ, such as buying in bulk from foreign countries. Now, right now, there's such a shortage. Uh, there's the, 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 quote, cow herd that produces the cattle is lower than it's been in 30, 40 years. But that's because the monopolies have forced a lot of cattle ranchers out of the market. And they've done this uh, in many ways, but they import, they import, um, beef from foreign countries and label it as U.S. beef. Can you how, believe that? How are they able to do that? Because our government allows them. As long as they're slaughtered here in the U.S.? That, is Doesn't that... even matter. Miller says the meat only has to be repackaged and relabeled in the U.S. to be called U.S. made. He says the U.S. government tried to require retailers to show the country of origin for meat, but the Canadian and the Mexican government sued the U.S. and the World Trade Organization saying that was against the North American Free Trade Agreement. The U.S. then repealed that requirement. Miller says dependency on beef from foreign countries not only hurts American farmers, but also consumers. We saw that with COVID-19 when, when the pandemic initially happened. Um, we saw shortages of meat in the beef counter, in the meat counter. We saw prices go really high. According to him, the U.S. needs a more regional food system. If you'd like to see the full interview, please visit epictv.com. There's no climate emergency. That's a statement from a group of over a thousand scientists and professionals from all around the world. The effort is led by an independent foundation called Climate Intelligence, or Clintel. In the declaration, the group says climate science should be less political, while climate policies should be more scientific. It also says the world has warmed significantly less than the UN predicted, showing that we are far from understanding climate change with the current scientific models. In an email statement, the co-founder of Clintem, Marcel Crook, also said evidence in indicates 
that the increases in CO2 and temperature are not harmful for humans or nature, so there's no need for, quote, climate hysteria. Therefore, no need for the push to get rid of fossil fuels as soon as possible. Crook also said they've seen a lot of pushback from climate activists who said the people who signed the letter are retired climate scientists and no longer active. Crook says that's true and understandable, but he also said that if a working climate scientist dependent on government money signed the declaration, they face the risk of getting fired. Earlier today, I talked to Calvin Beisner, who is one of the people here who, in the United States who signed the declaration. He joined us together with David Legates. He's a former professor at the University of Delaware. He's also a climatologist. Both of them are with the Cornwall Alliance. It's a conservative policy group. So with us from the Cornwall Alliance is President Calvin Beisner. We also have the Director of Research and Education, David Legates. Legates is a professor and former Delaware State climatologist. David, I think I want to send the first question. Thank you to both of you for, for coming on and speaking to us. David, I'll send the first question to you. How did you reach your conclusion that there is no climate emergency? Well, it's a long discussion. Uh, it took me a lot of years, but the idea effectively is that when I look at the data, I don't see a large change in extremes. I don't see that climate models represent the reality. And in short, uh, what I'm seeing in terms of signals is more land use change uh, leading to any warming that we see rather than seeing actual carbon dioxide signal in the environment. Calvin, how did you reach this conclusion? Well, again, as with David, it's been a long, long <laughs> process reaching back about 30 years and reading in all of this. Uh, what I see is that the overwhelming cause of long-term climate change has been natural, that there's no particular reason to think that carbon dioxide or other uh, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions have been the dominant causes in the last 60 to 150 years or so. Uh, that doesn't mean that they haven't contributed. I'm quite sure that they have. But what we have seen is basically a moderating of climate. Uh, fewer high temperature extremes uh, are, or rather not, not added high temperature machine, uh, extremes, but far fewer cold temperature extremes. And that's a very good thing because on average, cold snaps uh, kill about 20 times as many people per day as heat waves. So actually, I think the, the benefits of some uh, greenhouse gas-driven warming probably outweigh the costs. Then Calvin, why is it that the overwhelming consensus seems to be that there is a climate emergency? Well, I'm not sure that there is such a consensus. I think there's clearly a consensus that global average temperature has risen by somewhere around 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius over the last 170 years. I think there's clearly a consensus that our emissions of greenhouse gases have contributed to that. Probably there's a consensus that they've contributed more than half, possibly even all of that. Where the consensus doesn't exist is in saying that this is an emergency, that we have a catastrophe coming on our way, that we need to spend trillions of dollars attempting to mitigate this. Uh, I think instead the consensus is that uh, what we see is something that uh, humanity can adapt to, after all. Uh, we can thrive in every climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest. Uh, and so consequently, adaptation makes much better sense than mitigation because adaptation can apply no matter what is causing the warming. 
David, do you agree that we are seeing extreme weather, even in regards to kind of extreme cases, hurricanes, flooding, stuff like this, or even in temperatures? And if you do, what do you attribute it to? We're seeing no trends in essentially heat waves, cold spells. We're seeing no trends in hurricanes. We're actually seeing a slight downward trends in tornadoes. Uh, but often in many places, we are seeing increased flooding and increased droughts. And as state climatologists, I was always asked, uh, are we seeing more in northern Delaware? And the answer is yes. Uh, it's anthropogenically produced, but it has nothing to do with climate change. It's largely land use. I mean, when you go from a scenario where the, 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 the surrounding countryside is full of um, uh, trees and shrubs and so forth, and then over 70, 80 years, it becomes developed to the point at which we've got a lot of asphalt, macadam, and hard surfaces, you exacerbate flooding events and then put a lot more people using a lot more water in a lot more water-intensive activities. You simply, when the, when the water runs short, you just don't have enough to go around. So floods and droughts are actually increasing in frequency, but it has really nothing to do with climate change, everything to do with land use change. Are you seeing this trend globally? Because I've heard news reports of droughts in places like Africa, even, but we even hear of high temperatures in, in Europe, maybe even record highs recently. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, you see it as well. But when you start to get away from these urban effects, and when you look at droughts, for example, uh, if we look at it from a climatological standpoint, such as the Palmer Drought Severity Index, which gets away from human activities, we see that there is no long-term trend in droughts in the United States. There is no long-term trends in droughts uh, in the globe. Um, but you know, when they occur, they garner a lot more attention than they did in the past, and so you hear a lot more about them now. Uh, you, the declaration says that climate science should be less political. What are some examples of that? Oh, I think we see uh, the politicization of science all over the place. And one of the easiest cases is simply uh, the claim that there is this vast, overwhelming consensus of scientists that we're facing a climate change catastrophe due to emissions of greenhouse gases. You will not find that in even the uh, assessment reports of the, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What you find is that's coming from politicians, from environmental activist organizations, and the like. Uh, similarly, uh, the, the, the concentration on uh, how this is going to affect the poor is a highly politicizing thing because that tugs on people's emotions. And yet, at the same time, we would recognize that the demand to substitute wind, solar, and other renewable energy sources for fossil fuels is a demand for much more expensive, far less reliable energy sources, and yet abundant, affordable, reliable energy is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping whole societies out of poverty. So uh, we, we really need to try to look at the science and to quantify that as best we can and then, in separate discussions, discuss policy. Uh, policy needs to be informed by good science, but it can't drive science. And frankly, science can't drive policy because science is about facts, whereas policy is driven by values. Calvin Beisner, David Legates, appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And still to come. Ride-hailing company Uber taking action to improve safety it's in the wake of lawsuits accusing it of not protecting riders. 
And the new look for the iconic sports car from Back to the Future, 40 years in the making. We have that and much more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. The Biden administration's plan to forgive student loans means that borrowers won't have to pay federal taxes on the forgiven debt, but they may have to pay state taxes. According to the Tax Foundation, a number of states could consider the forgiven debt as income. Borrowers could face a state tax liability of $300 to $1,100. States usually follow the federal tax code when deciding whether or not something is taxable, but not always. Individuals who make less than $125,000 a year and couples who make less than $250,000 could receive up to $10,000 in student loan forgiveness. Students who received a Pell Grant qualify for $20,000 in cancelled debt. And the Federal Trade Commission is issuing a warning about scammers possibly using student loan forgiveness as bait. Today's Consumer Watch, some tips from the Better Business Bureau to protect yourself. Unsolicited calls, texts, emails, and fraudulent websites. It's how scammers will likely use the latest news about student loan forgiveness to bait new victims. Scammers will promise fast forgiveness, whether it is additional benefits, faster benefits, erasing your student debt. All of those are empty promises that will lead to an empty pocketbook. The Better Business Bureau is bracing for a spike in calls and reports after the Federal Trade Commission issued a consumer alert about potential scams involving student loans. Last Wednesday, President Joe Biden announced a plan to address student loan debt, including debt forgiveness for certain borrowers. The BBB says scammers may use the news to attempt to defraud borrowers looking for eligibility information. It's important to know that the government is not allowed to call you about your student loan unless you've given permission. The Better Business Bureau has these tips to protect yourself. First, understand that these government programs are free to sign up for and that anyone offering you help for a fee is a red flag. Number two, know the ins and outs of your student loan. Know the terms and don't fall for it if a scammer promises you benefits the government or your loan provider hasn't already offered you. Number three, do your research. Look up the lender or company reaching out to you to find out if there's a scam artist on the other end of the line. Number four, look twice before you click. The BBB says some imposters often create lookalike government websites, so pay attention to the URL. And finally, protect your private data. Don't give out your social security number, federal student aid ID, or any other personal information. And Uber is taking action to help improve safety for its users. Customers will now be able to connect with a live agent from ADT Security. 
Uber officials say the agent will monitor the entire route. Uber says this can help ease uncomfortable situations like a driver running low on gas or a ride through an unfamiliar neighborhood. Lyft has had this security feature for the past few years, but both Uber and Lyft are facing numerous assault claims lawsuits. The suits allege the companies don't do enough to protect the riders. And great Scott, did you say DeLorean? You may have heard after 40 years, there's finally a new model of the iconic sports car from Back to the Future movies. But the new DeLorean Alpha 5 electric car looks nothing like the last model made before the company went out of business in 1982. It still has the trademark gullwing doors, but that's pretty much it. The DeLorean from the movies was an icon of modern design, but the designers of the Alpha 5 had a 40-year gap to fill in. Turns out they based the new car on DeLorean's second model, which never got made. The designers pretended the car's evolution had never stopped, imagining making the quarter-scale models of it. The resulting design was the Alpha 5, a real DeLorean, 40 years in the making. What do you think? As the latest in the NTD business team, myself, Paul Graney. Follow me on Twitter, though, if you're there. Now, if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, email us, business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.